So we're going to finish Colossians 1 tonight, verses 24 through 29 is all we have left. Then we'll get in chapter 2 starting next week. So if your Bibles are open, starting verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations has now been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Work mightily in your word tonight. Speak to each and every servant that is here tonight. Lord, conform us to the image of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice that we just celebrated, your resurrection from the dead. Lord, may the resurrection power of Jesus be in our presence tonight. We know it's in the word. May it be on my lips. May it be... Uh, just stirring each heart to draw nearer to you. We thank you for this time. We continue to pray for a revival for our nation on this anniversary of a man who was killed in cold blood, Lord, just because he's standing up for something that was right. We pray, Lord, that our nation would repent of so many things. Lord, that we would see a cleansing and a great awakening in this country. Lord, use us as individual little lights in a dark world. And, Lord, even tonight, may you build us up in the faith through your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These verses are all about keeping our focus. Now, we talked about that last week as I did a topical message from the Psalms. But there are a million things that come at us. Wouldn't you agree? Just in a day. A million things that come at us or in our life that derail us, or would try and derail us, but the hope of salvation and the power of God is actually more than enough. The hope of salvation is more than enough. And we want to take a look at three things tonight. Um, one last thing I wanted to add to Dr. Russ's announcements before we get into that. I did want to draw your attention. Uh, with the Stones being here Sunday, I also want to implore you to buy some coffee. This is not in Colossians. You will not see this in chapter 1. But now that I had your attention, buy it. Say, I don't drink coffee. Give it to your boss as a gift. Give it to a friend. Give it to your doctor. Give, well, maybe not your doctor. Give it to somebody. Uh, give it to a neighbor. Give it to a stranger. Uh, because every bit will go to them. So 15 to 20 a bag. And so we'll have the, uh, the burgers and hot dogs. Provided the sun is shining, we'll have a cookout. If it's not, we'll have pizza. Uh, but again... All this goes to them. We're not, we're not keeping anything. All this is ju really just to kind of support the ministry there. And they're doing tremendous work with women that have been brought out of forms of uh, slavery or trafficking and uh, men that are coming out of addictions or gangs. And so, um, so much of what God's heart is is taking place there. You'll hear more from Jeff on Sunday. But again, uh, buy a bag, give it to somebody. And uh, I promise you, uh, God will use it. But back to our study. 
Is one of, by the way, that was them at Calvary Chattanooga. They're there tonight. Jeff is sharing there uh, tonight, and he'll be with us Sunday. But back to our study. The first thing, if you're taking notes that we want to take a look at tonight, starts in verse 1. I now rejoice in my sufferings. How many of you like to quote that verse? I now rejoice in my sufferings. There's nothing I like better than suffering. Put that on your next Christmas card, you know, uh, we wish you a lot of suffering, you know, instead of a Merry Christmas or, or a birthday or something like that. We want to look at, uh, if I could encapsulate this, I've titled this first bullet, if you're taking notes, Sense in Our Sufferings. Paul makes some sense of it here. Now, just because he makes sense of it doesn't mean you'll necessarily feel that immediately. We have to walk this out. The Christian life, everything about it has to be walked out and lived out. Not many people long for and prayerfully invite sufferings in their life. But as we looked at uh, with the gates of Nehemiah, remember we went around the city gates, one of those is the valley gate. And everyone has valley periods. Everyone has suffering and difficulty that's allowed in their life for reasons they can't understand, um, reasons that they try and understand, reasons that they wish they understood, but it just doesn't come. And that suffering is there and, and you can't make any sense of it and Paul, he's not talking about here self-induced suffering because of sin or sinful habits or disobedience, but rather suffering while being faithful in serving Christ and because of serving Christ. Not just suffering uh, while serving, but because of serving. Sometimes the very reason you're suffering is because you're serving Christ. Now, Paul personally has endured many valleys, many trials, Many periods of suffering and pain. You look at the language of the verse, it strikes me. Um, I, I couldn't find a lot that kind of hit on this, but when, when I read this, Paul says, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, it's not Christ himself. Christ is fulfilled. When he said it's finished, he doesn't suffer anymore. Remember, he meets Paul on the road to Damascus, but he says, why are you persecuting me? He's speaking of the body of Christ here. I believe it's, it's possible here that Paul is saying, hey, some of my suffering is because there's not a good balance. Some people aren't willing to suffer for the name of Christ, so I'm getting like more than my fair share here. And he certainly had his fair share. But you look at the language here. If we are committed to serving Christ, um, we're going to have some sufferings. Uh, there's going to be some trials. There's going to be some difficult times. Now, Jesus warned of this, didn't he? He said, in this world you might have tribulation, possible to have tribulation, will have tribulation. <laughs> That's not the kind of sign-ups that most people that are trying to build a you know, consensus, you know, other religions or companies or marketing plans. Uh, hey, sign up. You're going to have lots of tribulation. You will have it. So Jesus told us some are invariably going to come our way. It's been well said, I didn't coin it, I don't remember who originally coined it, but uh, it's been well said that we're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or heading into a trial. That's a great bit of encouragement there for you here tonight. How about that, right? But if you're a believer, these things happen. Trials come in various sizes, but consistently in our life, they keep coming different ways. Dr. Tony Evans said trials are to see if you believe 
what you say you believe. If you believe what you say you believe. Most are seasonal. Most trials are seasonal. They can be short. They can be long. They can include things like grief over the death of a loved one. Rejection can be a trial. Betrayal. People have been betrayed and lost a spouse due to betrayal. Persecution, generally not for Americans, but a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ could say, no, no, we understand that one full too well. Other parts of the world. A period of illness, sickness or disease, emotional or mental battles that people will go through, through sometimes long seasons, just to name a few. Some trials and some suffering can last a lifetime, such as chronic pain. Blindness. Everyone's been blind from a long period of time. How about being confined to a wheelchair? Other types of um, disabilities. Certainly there are many others that, that I could name. But again, some trials last an entire lifetime. And finally, um, some suffering might be our last suffering because it could result in us leaving this world. Some, of, some Christians, the last thing they suffered was martyrdom. So there was that kind of suffering. It could be very end. It could be a final battle with some disease. All of these things. Uh, of course, that would eliminate suffering once you're in the presence of the Lord. Amen? Uh, if that was your final battle, uh, then, we wouldn't have, then we wouldn't have any more suffering after that. Uh, but that would be our last suffering before meeting Christ face to face. But all suffering is only going to end all forms when our life ends. All suffering, whatever that is, certain suffering will never, or all suffering that is, will only end when our life finally ends. Now, knowing that it's an impossible thing to avoid suffering or to eliminate it, you can't put yourself in a bubble, you can't put yourself on a private island. It could be, God could send anything anywhere, right? There's no way to avoid it. The way we do it is to walk through it with Jesus, to walk through it with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I fill up uh, for the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. He's speaking to say, hey, none of this is making me shrink back. I'm even pushing forward. Wouldn't it be wonderful for us all to come to Paul's level of maturity in this kind of thinking. Wouldn't you agree? You ever read some of the things that Paul writes and say, wow, I wish I truly thought that way. I can read it and wish that I thought with it, but I'm like, could I write it as a true letter to a church say, hey, here's how I live? Or would it be, well, I don't think I can write this just yet. Not really in my heart. But it'd be wonderful for us to come to that place of maturity where we rejoice in the suffering God allows Here's the good news. We actually can. Paul wasn't different than us in the sense that he's made of the same parts that we are, same genetic material. We have the same capacity to grow to the place that we can. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings. And I want to give you a few things that uh, might be helpful. Learning to rejoice. So Paul says he rejoiced in suffering. How do we learn to rejoice when it comes to to suffering. Well, the first point, if you're taking notes, is that it starts with knowing that God loves us. Do you believe that God loves you? Scriptures say 
I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you believe that you're loved with an everlasting love? We have to know that, that God loves us. Knowing that God loves us is a big, big comfort. It's like his arms around us. We know that he's allowing things in our life, that he loves us. For God so loved the world, and that's even when we were still in sin. But once we've been brought into the body of Christ, we're called the beloved. A lot of times Christians around the world will speak to each other. We don't use that here. We say brother or sister or somebody. But a lot of times believers around the world will refer to each other. Beloved, you'll see it in the New Testament as well. We are the beloved. God has loved us. He's lavished his love on us. But Jesus said, you're going to face tribulation, but I still will have my arms of love around you. Number two, we have to start to rejoice when we're not suffering. A lot of Christians, when things are going good, they don't really talk to God. Things are going good, they just do it. They're just enjoying life, washing the boat, fishing, golfing, did I develop a southern accent? Golfing. You know, I don't know. But uh, all these different things that, that people do, that entertainment. But God says, why don't you worship me and rejoice? And a lot of people, the only time they'll do that when things are going good is when they're in a church service. As long as things are going good, no need to really rejoice. And Even though that would be, you would think it would be, axiomatic, if I'm doing great, then I should be rejoicing to God. But, but that's not the response a lot of times. A lot of times people are doing well, they don't rejoice. They just are focused on themselves instead of focused on the Lord. So we have to learn to rejoice when things are not a suffering period. Giving thanks all the time. Worshiping God when things are going well. And then lastly, we have to start to learn to rejoice on the minor inconveniences of life. In other words, we will never rejoice when there's really big things in our life if we haven't learned to rejoice with the minor things, the flat tires of life. I mean, the scheme of it all, and I'm just, and that's metaphoric. I'm not, that could be a real flat tire, but in the metaphor, understanding that the flat tires of life are not really that huge a deal or the battery goes bad in the car. The things in life that, um, well, we were expecting to get this appliance, but we can only afford this one. That's not a huge trial, right? In the scheme of all things. So when we have the minor inconveniences, the irritations. So-and-so didn't didn't say hi. And I, we just did everything for their birthday, and we were so we went over the top for them, and we didn't even get a thank you. The lesser, I don't, I don't you can't even call some of these things trials, but but there are trials that we go through that are irritating, that are annoying, that are bothersome, that do mess up our schedule. Have you ever? Here's a minor trial. It messed up your whole Saturday. In the scheme of life, you won't think about that a few weeks from now. Don't say, remember the worst thing we ever, uh, you ever seen uh, Tim Hawkins, he says a little, uh, little clip, he goes, that's the worst, right? And things like, 
oh, man, went through the drive-thru, and we got home, and there was only four Chick-fil-A sandwiches in there, and there were supposed to be six. What a trial. How are we going to survive this, right? But there are things that, that really inconvenience us or uh, do cost $300 out of the checking account. And, you know, for some people, that might be a major trial. And other people, that's a minor irritation. So I'm not minimizing. Depends on where you're at. But sometimes these things come. And we have to learn to rejoice in those moments so we're ready for bigger ones. No soldier could get trained for if you were going to be a Roman soldier, you couldn't take on the toughest armies in the world just immediately. You had to build up to it. And so as a believer, we're building up to being able to learn to rejoice in suffering because we can take minor irritations and then more difficult irritations and then, oh, that's actually a little bit of real suffering and working our way up to learning to rejoice. So when you get to the Apostle Paul's level and you're beaten in prison, one time probably stoned to death and brought back to life, and he could say, Praise the Lord. Not easy to get to that point. But it starts today. It starts, remember, small steps of faith and obedience. Small steps today have a huge impact on our walk tomorrow. Small steps today. First, rejoicing when everything's going well. Then rejoicing in the small inconveniences. Then rejoicing in the other things. Because you can have, you've probably had trials in your past <laughs> that you didn't know how to rejoice in them. You only knew how to be depressed in them. Almost ready to just completely give up on it. I mean, this is how people become suicidal. And I mean, really, they really have all these things because no one's ever taught them the discipleship of Paul would say, no, no, just start today. Start saying thanks for these minor things. And then if a major thing comes, and they're going to come for everybody. There's no avoid. Even unsaved people are going to have big things happen that they didn't expect. Lots of unsaved people lost kids at the shooting at that school a few, a few weeks back. That's a trial. Matter of fact, uh, Calvary, Fort Lauderdale, and many of the churches that are down there have been able to step in and be a light of Christ, showing, hey, God still loves and reaches out. But we have to learn these steps. We have to learn to rejoice now. You see, we're always preparing now for tomorrow's needs and the maturity that we're going to need down the road. We're always preparing for that future uh, uh, time or season, whatever it is. I don't think Paul was always able to do this or that he aced it every time. None of us are going to ace it every time. There's going to be times when things come and our first response is, I hate this. Not, yes, Lord, thank you for training me again. Right? I don't think Paul aced it every time. I don't think he ever had a time where he, where he didn't. I don't think he every single time just took it and never asked God why. We know he pleaded with the Lord three times that a thorn in flesh be taken away from him. So he would feel those things. He could say, ouch. But he came to the place where his practice, his practice was to rejoice and give thanks even in times of suffering. I had only been saved, um, how long had I been saved? Maybe three years. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I had a coworker that could not stand my faith, just despised me. And I was starting to despise them as well. So I would tell the Lord, Lord, 
I do, I'm not liking this person that much more. I want to go Elijah on them or something like that. You know, I'm not liking them that much more than they're liking me, even though I've been nice, nice, nice. I'm, I'm reaching a breaking point. And, I, and the Lord, it just came to me. Clear as a bell. The Lord said, just keep praying and tell them you, tell me, me telling God, just keep praying. Lord, bless them. Bless them. The Bible talks about heaping coals on someone's head by praying the, for the Lord to bless them. So I did. I kept praying it. And by the way, when you pray this, sometimes in your spirit, you'll feel like you don't even mean it. It's okay. You're not going by feelings. You're going by truth. The truth is God says, pray it anyway. So you're saying, Lord, thank you that my headache will not go away. Thank you for this headache that's really causing me to not even be able to look at this spreadsheet and understand two numbers on it. Thank you anyway. The amazing thing is you start praying it even when you feel like you don't mean it. God will start doing miracles in your life. I don't know how it works. It's just God saying, now that you obey, I will open some doors that you didn't think. And by the way, that coworker, I kept praying it and praying it and praying it. It didn't take as long as I thought. In my mind, I thought it was like forever. It was like weeks. But I thought it was like 10 years in my mind. A few weeks later, things got a little better. Things got a little better. Things got a little better. Eventually, we actually had a decent relationship. I had it happen again, like four, five years later. Another company I was working for. They don't, by the way, people don't always like our Christian faith, especially if you're going to stand for the Lord. They don't always like it. But you have to respond with saying, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to be a light. And each and every time I was able to see God turn it around because, again, we're not living in some, we're not living in North Korea here for the most part. We have opportunities to win people over with the right response. But first, our response to the Lord has to be right. But even as we're committed to learning to rejoice in all circumstances, the question of why often looms. Wouldn't you agree? A lot of times people say certain things just don't make sense. Why, Lord? Why this suffering? I want to take a look at that for just a second. Making sense of suffering. There are some certainly hidden reasons eternal reasons, divine reasons that are not revealed in this lifetime. But I believe there are some primary purposes, and Paul specifically names one of them right here in the text, and he makes a connection to a second. But these pro three reasons are very prominent in the New Testament that we'll take a look at, that at least, uh, take a look at, that at least tell us a little bit of the why. Not every detail, but some of this why. And it makes, a connect, um, it makes a little more sense to us when we see that God has given some of that background. The first, if you're taking notes, it glorifies God because we enter the sufferings of Christ, which Paul says here. The afflictions of Christ. Now, again, Christ doesn't suffer anymore. He's sitting on the throne. I mean, in his, in his literal resurrected body he is not suffering he did that on the cross however in the body of christ still is but when jesus did walk this earth did he suffer oh yeah well before the cross he suffered he was a man acquainted with sorrows well before the cross he suffered the cross was the explosion of the suffering but he was already suffering many times well before that so there's uh a glory but but again just as 
God was glorified through the sufferings of Jesus, we also glorify God through our suffering. Even though we, we might not see any benefit here in the spirit realm, it's still glorifying God. Because, by the way, the demonic forces can see God being glorified. The enemy can see God being glorified. We don't just wrestle with flesh and blood. Actually, we don't wrestle at all with flesh and blood uh, in the truest sense of the word. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice, here it is again, so Peter, different apostle, he says the same thing, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So Peter said, hey, I, you know, the night of, um, the night of Jesus' arrest, I wasn't ready to suffer. But later on, I came to the place that I said, if Jesus suffered, I'll suffer with him and rejoice to the extent that God is glorified in it. So again, it's just the knowledge. God says, look, even if you don't understand it, I'm glorified when you follow the footsteps of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, take up your brand new 7,000 square foot home didn't say that. He said, take up your cross. He didn't say, take up all the gold jewelry you could possibly carry. He didn't say that. He didn't say, take up the biggest bank account in Richmond. Take up your cross. So we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, which glorifies God. Number two, we have a transformation of a deeper faith. A transformation of a deeper faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, my brethren, count it all joy. <laughs> it seems like each one of these writers are reading from the same script, right? Peter says rejoice. Paul says rejoice. James says count it joy. They are really doing a dead level best to convince the church to embrace with joy what God allows to come our way. But he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Patience. You know there's no way to produce patience unless you wait? If you never had to wait through anything, you'd never develop patience, nor would I. Patience can only be learned through waiting. There's not another, well, I'd like to learn patience without waiting. Just kind of poof. God just kind of drop it on it. You, you bypass, you have, um, you remember how you could actually uh, take a test and get out of the exams? Right? What was that called? You could bypass the exam. What's that? Class. Yeah, so, but God, we don't really get that. God, I don't offer that course here. You go through the whole thing, you know? You learn by actually going through it. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James said, hey, these trials that God allowed... Count it joy that God is going to refine you, conform you, make you more into the image of Jesus. You'll learn patience. Your faith will become strong. Your roots will get a whole lot deeper. The deeper the roots get, the stronger the tree is when strong winds come, right? Roots get way down there. It's trees that have little shallow roots. doesn't take much of a wind to knock them over. But the roots are deep, and they go out, and they start getting further and further away from the base then they have a strong foundation, and God is doing that in our life. And, and, and by the way, when that, the longer that happens, our faith in things that we used to not have faith in is found, the things that don't rock our world that used to rock, 
maybe when you're earlier in your salvation, say, well, that, that doesn't really rock my world now. I don't necessarily pray, hey, Lord, send that. But I'm able to say, again, the same process, learning to say, yes, Lord, thank you, Lord, rejoice and be transformed. And just know that, Lord, I believe that you're going to do this in me for a transformational work. And then third, Paul says in the end of verse 24, what does it say? For the sake of his body, which is the church, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul says, I'm suffering for your benefit. Did you know that some of the trials we're going through are that we are someday going to be able to put an arm around somebody else and say, maybe not even say a word. But because they know what you've been through, you won't need to say a word. You're putting an arm around. They'll just know that you know that you've been there. You've walked that path or you've been through that same kind of fire. <coughs> it encourages. It strengthens. It helps other people. I'm encouraged by people that I know have fought a good fight through things and have come through and can rejoice or can tell me. You're, I'll never forget Lewis Neely was preaching to a whole group of pastors. I don't know how old Lewis Neely is now. Uh, warehouse out in Sacramento, California, Calvary Chapel out there. But I don't know if he's in his, I guess, probably in his 70s. But I remember he just looked out to a group of pastors. He goes, y'all are going to make it. That's all he said. I don't remember everything else he said that night, but I remember him saying, you're going to make it. And you only can receive that from people you know have been through something. You don't receive that from someone who has had a silver spoon in their mouth the entire time. You know, like, you need to hear from someone who has been through, who has battle scars. When they tell you God can bring you through this, you get a little bit of courage. You get a little bit of strength. You feel all of a sudden, all right, I, I can do this. When someone who's been through things tells you, no, Paul's like, I'm going through these things so you guys can see if I can make it, you can make it. That's what Paul was saying. If you can see me fighting the good fight, Paul was saying, you will be able to move forward as well. Said, Paul said, I go through these things so God can show you through my life that you too can do this. 2 Corinthians 1.6 says, Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Paul spells it out there. He says the things that we go through are really to be a testament to our kids, to our neighbors, to other believers, that, hey, God will bring you through, and you'll be stronger in the process. You'll have more joy at the end of it. How in the world will I have more joy at the end of this? I promise you, you will. I don't believe you. And they can tell their story if you want to hear it. Let's take a look at the next, taking notes. Secure in our calling. Verse 25, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me to fulfill uh, for you, by the way, it was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Look back at uh, Paul's opening words in chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1, so just look to your left, up in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. He's always reminding himself. I, I don't think Paul only writes to the church. I think all men and women of God, when we talk to other people, we're also talking to ourselves truth. You got to preach to yourself, by the way. 
I pre anything I preach to you, I preach to me. I, I don't look at it and say, well, these folks. Need I'm preaching to me too. Because I, I take the word and I have to apply it to myself. And you have to apply it to yourself. But Paul could say to himself, I didn't make myself an apostle. God did. He could say to the church, I didn't ask to be an apostle. God made me one. And he says here another uh, just kind of term of what he is, a minister. Someone called to minister or to serve like the priesthood would. And you minister in the temple. That in other words, his whole life, Paul said, my whole life is dedicated to the work of God. Now all of us have been called into salvation. But Paul here is saying, I became a minister, someone completely dedicated to the gospel because God called him. Now Paul knew God called him because he was on his road to Damascus to go wipe out Christians. And the whole trip didn't go the way he thought it was going to go, right? Jesus gets a hold of him, says, uh, you now belong to me. Uh, you got to wait through some time. Scales are going to fall off your eyes. Then finally you're going to realize that I am who I say I am. And I belong to you and I'm going to send you to kings and rulers and Gentiles and Jewish synagogues. So Paul says, I am an apostle by the will of God. I'm a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me. And Paul says, here it is again, for you. My sufferings are for you. My service is for you. Trust me, I have to remind myself from time to time, literally, I have to remind myself, and I'm talking to God, Lord, you called me to be a pastor. You called me to pastor this church. So you can help me. That's, me, that's some of my prayers to God. That's every pastor in the world's prayers to God at times. If you never prayed that prayer, then you probably shouldn't be pastoring. Moses said, Lord, if I've found grace in your sight, please take me home. He really prayed that prayer. God didn't answer that prayer. He said, get back out there and do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but don't slap the rock, which he ended up doing. But um, you might say, if you have kids, you can say, Lord, you called me to be a father. So you can help me do it, Right? Lord, you called me to be a husband. Um, I read a, a quote uh, this week from John Piper. It said, you can leave your bride when Jesus leaves his. How about that? That's how you know you have a calling. You can leave your bride when Jesus leaves his. That's how you know you have a calling. I can leave the pastorate when God says, I, I'm not, I, I'm not even thinking, I'm just saying all of the things that God calls us to do, he says, if I've called you, now just do it. If I've called you to be a husband, be a husband. If I've called you to be a father, be a father. If I've called you to go serve at Bonaire, go do it willingly. Go on a mission trip, do these things. Paul says, I've been called to be a minister. God can help us to be faithful in all the seasons. But we have to pray, Lord, give me the love. Give me the wisdom. Give me the awareness. Give me a more 360 view of where I'm kind of, where the, we talked about this in the inspection gate, where are the gaps at in my life? Everybody has gaps. But we can fill those gaps in over time. We say, all right, Lord, now you showed me that one. One of the best things we can all be in our calling is teachable. 
Are you teachable? Are you willing to admit, me and my wife, you know who we disciple more than anyone else on planet Earth? Each other. We don't pick each other apart, but we will say, you know, I'll pray with you in that area. She'll say, I'll pray with you in that area. And we're able to say, honest. You know, it's really good when you have someone you can be honest with about your flaws and just say, I know I'm called in this area, but I'm really dropping the ball in this specific area. When you have someone in your life that you can say, this area, I'm dropping the ball. By the way, when you do that, you'll become a more faithful minister of that area. Because eventually, if you really say, you don't feel like, eh, it's no big deal. You're like, how can I? Would you agree? It's not, it's no big deal. It's how can I start to address these things? And Paul had gone through that to the place where he could be, he who's faithful with little will be faithful in what? Much. Once we're absolutely convinced God has called us into our sphere, into our ministry area, as a mom, as a father, as some area of service here in the body of Christ, once you say, Lord, I know for sure you've put me in this place, it steadies our resolve. It steadies our resolve. The calling of God, once it's settled in our minds and settled in our hearts, it begins to override feelings. Oh, it's a great place. When you can start overriding feelings, when I can start overriding feelings. Feelings can be spelled a lot of times like this, L-I-E. A lot, not all the time, because some feelings are good feelings. If you're worshiping tonight... Juan played two songs, the second time, Lord, you just felt like you could almost see Jesus on the throne. That's a good feeling. But if you felt like, I want to go home and watch TV, L-I-E, that's not coming from God, right? You might feel it, say, ah, right now, I'd much rather be sitting on my back porch. That's not coming from the Lord. So you just ignore it. You just kind of push it aside. We say, Lord, I'm called to be, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our calling. We can override our failures. Satan wants us to be bogged down by past failures. God says, set them on fire. Don't worry about the past failures. Move forward. Our fears. I never even battled fears until I got older. The more you go further in the Lord, you know, the enemy tries to say, that'll never work, this'll never work, this'll never work, this'll never work. Just tell him, Jesus makes it all work. How about our inabilities? You, you will get called to things that you know you're not qualified for, and God says, I'm going to have you do it anyway. How about this one? Peter, I'd like you to walk on water. Who's qualified to do that? <laughs> Nobody. I'd like you to walk on water. Go ahead. Give it a try. Nobody's qualified for that. Jesus makes us able to do things. You've got to step out of the boat, though. Our inabilities, our shortcomings, Satan's accusations in, his, in, your, in our ear. He's the accuser of the brethren, always there to accuse you, always there to say, you failed, you failed, you failed, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're not smart enough, you don't have enough education, you don't have enough this. The criticism of other people. That's caused many people to throw in the towel. That's why some people have divorced. That's why some people have left the pulpit. That's why some people have no longer served in the Sunday school. That's why some people, I'm not going to be on the worship team anymore because I looked out there and somebody laughed or that, whatever it is. The criticism of other people. 
the doubts of other people because they have doubts, then they cast their doubts on you. I don't think, I don't think we should go on the mission trip. Why? We'll never raise the money. You were thinking you could raise the money, and then they told you, no, we'll never raise the money. Well, get a new friend. No, I'm kidding. You, know, just to, um, you got to build them back up say, no, we can. How about the distractions of Satan? Do you, do you think Paul dealt with any of these things? Seriously. All of them. He's human like us. The distractions of Satan. You ever about to get deep into your Bible, and then all of a sudden you've gotten distracted with 50 things, and you can't even remember that you were about to open it up? How did I end up in the garage? What am I doing here? Why am I on my phone again? You know, all these kind of things. Then we have our own self-made distractions, not just Satan's distractions, our own self-made distractions. I'm so busy. Well, let's take a look at your calendar. You created this one, this one, this one, this one. None of these. Satan didn't create any of these. You created these, right? We have our self-made distractions. Paul simplified his life so he could stay focused on the Lord. The Spirit of God will remind us that none of those things, none of those things bring the condemnation of God. We can, we can look at them and be honest and, Lord, you know, the, these things apply to me. He's not condemning. He's saying, all right, now that you notice, what are you going to do? They don't bring us a condemnation of God, but they also don't release us from what he's called us to. Paul could say, Lord, I failed last week. Satan's been buffeting me. I've had some distractions. People have been criticizing me. Even in jail, they're criticizing me. All these things. He could go through the list, and God says, all right, you're right. You're, not, you're no longer called to be an apostle. Did God ever say that? No. Paul said, I became a minister according to stewardship from God, which is given from me to you to fulfill the word of God. None of those things release us from where God has called us to serve. No, the headwinds and the knockdowns of life are to make us more dependent on his mercy, more dependent on his grace, more dependent on his word, more dependent on the power of prayer, more dependent on the spirit. Because the, all those things, all that laundry list of feelings, failures, fears, fall downs, accusations, all those things are proof that we can't do it without Jesus. That's what they are. They're proof points we can't do it without the Lord. Now, there are certainly things that can disqualify us from any capacity in life. True? There are things that can disqualify us from responsibilities. I personally think pastors that have, if they steal money or if extramarital, shouldn't ever be pastors again. That's my personal conviction. Pastor Chuck had that conviction. Others do. Uh, many others say, oh, well, they go back, right, you know, kind of like some kind of revolving door to that kind of stuff. I think there's things that should disqualify. Paul had never done anything disqualified him. He just had the battles of life. And we're not talking about things that could disqualify. We're talking about the normal battles, bumps, bruises, doubts, and disappointments that cause us to feel like giving up, right? To feel like, oh, I can't take it another day, right? That's what we're talking. Paul said these things happen, but he says, I have a stewardship. I've been called to this. I can't, I can't let all the knee scrapes, I can get back up. Rice man falls seven times. He does what? Gets back up again. Dr. Charles Stanley said, disappointment is inevitable, but to become discouraged, there's a choice I make. 
God would never discourage me. He would always point me to himself to trust him. Therefore, my discouragement is from Satan. Anything discouraging a person to give up serving, to give up their marriage, to give up this, to give up anything, if it's, if it's good, if it's godly, if it's given by God, anything that would say, I'm done with this, is discouragement from Satan. It didn't come from the Lord. God is never trying to derail us, but to deepen us in our calling. Not derail us, but to deepen us. The enemy uses feelings to weaken our walk and to weaken our faith and to weaken our resolve. The attacks that come against our responsibilities with Christ are, are personal. Our, our vertical relationship is first and foremost. Amen? We have that responsibility to stay in fellowship with the Lord, but attacks come against that. Matter of fact, they come there before they come everywhere else. So we have that vertical relationship. We have attacks against our family responsibility. We have attacks against our ministry responsibilities. Some are frustrations. Some are fatigue. Some are failures. Some are setbacks. Some are difficult seasons or maybe difficult people or situations. And then comes the whisper. Throw in the towel. You're not cut out for this. I talked about that a couple Sundays ago, right? The scenario with, uh, with, a, with a dad that says, I'm done. That's when the enemy comes to whisper. Throw in the towel. Someone else will do it. Somebody else will be more qualified. But Paul is saying, and the Spirit of God is saying, remember why we're called. Why we're called. First, it's our salvation, but we're saved to be servants of the Lord. That's what we're called, servants of Christ. Servants have to work for the Lord. We all have a calling. We've all been given a stewardship. The Greek word for stewardship, it specifically means the management, the oversight, the administration of someone else's property. And guess whose property we're managing? The fathers. Your kids don't really belong to you. They belong to who? God. This church doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. Your ministry area, whether it's Tawana worship or Charming the Young at Heart or looking around the room, any of it, I can't see the rest of you without my glasses on, but whoever's out there, <laughs> your ministry area is not for you, it's for God. You're taking care of it for Him. That's what Paul said. I'm doing these things. Paul said, I'm, I've been getting a stewardship for you guys to grow and to fulfill the Word of God. But last point on this matter, just three quick things to help us understand. Paul lists a couple of things here, three things to be exact. We all have a calling. And number one, he says, it's a stewardship to fulfill. Everyone has something God wants them. It's just like in the gates around the... Everyone had a place on the wall. Everyone had a part to play on that wall. Everyone had a stewardship. Said, well, my stewardship is only a three-foot section. Great. Someone else might have a 10-foot section. Someone else might have a 50-foot section. That's okay. Take care of the section God's given. We all have a calling to fulfill from God. We all have lives to serve and impact. You will impact people I never will impact. By design, we all live in different parts of the city. God has us spread out on purpose. He doesn't want us all in a commune. 40 miles outside the city, huddled together. That's what cults and stuff are about. You know, we're not, we're called to go out and be in the world, but not of the world. 
to be salt and light, to sprinkle the salt, to sprinkle the light. Not that all the lights would be in one spot, but they're spread out. We all have lives to serve. We have people to impact. You have your families. I have my families. Now, we might cross-pollinate from time to time. That's really cool, but we have different places, and we all are called to fulfill this. And third, Paul says, um, according to stewardship uh, for you, so Paul said, for me to make an impact in your life. And then third, he says, to fulfill the word of God. We're all living epistles. We are all fulfilling the word of God. He told Abraham, look up in the heavens. See all these stars? That's, that's what your descendants are going to be like. We're those stars. We're all fulfilling the promises that God made way back. Where Jesus prayed in John 17, those who will believe, we're fulfilling the word of God. We're fulfilling the very prayers of Jesus before he went to the cross. The word of God is lived out in us as living epistles. The heart of God's word is lived out when people see the faith of God manifest in our life. So people say, hey, I don't know why you care so much, but you really do love Jesus. That's fulfilling the word of God, that men may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Our last thing to look at this evening. Verse 26 through 29, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages, from generation, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Number one, if you're taking notes here, strengthen our witness. God wants us to have a strength in their witness. Uh, to remember, we've been humble recipients. The mystery which has been hidden, verse 26, the mystery hidden from the ages has been revealed to us. We have, by the sovereignty and the love of God, been revealed the hidden mysteries of the Father's plan. There's nothing we did to deserve it. We weren't really extra special. Primary among them that we've been, what, what's been revealed to us? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. We know for certain that Jesus was God come in human flesh. I know that as sure as I know this pulpit's made of wood. I don't have any doubts about it. I might have doubts about me, but I don't have many doubts about that Jesus is who he said. I, a lot of times I have doubts about me. Can I pull this off? Can I do this? And I don't have any doubts that Jesus is who he says he is. How about you? We are convinced that he is sent from God and that he's the Savior of the world. We're convinced in his salvation by grace and blood. Now, he wasn't even known for the first 4,000 years of the Bible. No one even knew Remember when he got there, that's why so many people didn't believe who was who he said he was. We know he raised from the dead. Remember we talked about Sunday. The apostles didn't even believe he'd raised from the dead. Oh, quit telling stories. But it's been revealed to us that all of this is true. It's so true that you're banking your life on it now. But we've been humble recipients of this. We didn't deserve to know this is true. God opened our eyes we were in darkness. Jesus said, you didn't seek me. I did what? I sought you. That should humble us, that we've been humbly. Jesus came and sought us out. He could have let us just go ahead and live our lives and go right into eternity 
but he came and reached out to us. Now, a backdrop of this mystery, this is the mystery which has been hidden, a backdrop of this mystery also is that Gentiles and Jews will become and have become one in Jesus. Because there was a huge separation there before Jesus says, I'm sending you guys out into the world. Paul, you're going to the Gentiles. Peter, you're primarily going to the Jews. But all will be one. We are grafted in, as Romans tells us. And that promise was, was given to Abraham. Those stars were not just Jewish stars. Those were Jewish and Gentile stars in the sky. Different stars that we have been part of. The, the, um, the early church wasn't even sure out of the gate, like, could Gentiles even be saved? How are they going to get saved? They're not descendants of Abraham. How could the promises, but we're grafted in. We're be, we've become, in the spirit, the sons and daughters of Abraham. It should humble us and cause us to rejoice that this mystery has been revealed. Number two, and there's number one, which I talked about but didn't put up there. Number two, Christ in us, a glorious hope. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, verse 27 that God created the world with his voice, that he could sit in the heavens on his throne, that he could rest on Mount Sinai, or he could lead by a pillar of fire or cloud, or he could fill the Holy of Holies with his presence. All that was well established. Any, any Jewish person at that time had no trouble understanding all that. They're like, yeah, that is a mighty God. Pillars of sitting on Mount Sinai, sitting on the throne. All of that made sense. But that God would descend and dwell in us by his spirit and take residence in us, that was pretty unthinkable. That didn't dawn on anybody. Paul refers to this revelation as the riches of the glory of this mystery. That was a mystery that little old us could be a temple for the Lord. Right? They, remember, they, they were impressed by the magnificent temple itself of Herod, but that we could be little individual temples for the Lord to rest in. In other words, the sending of Christ, the revealing of Christ, and the work of Christ in each individual and his bride as the church is a work of extravagant riches. He says the riches of, his, of the glory of this mystery. If someone contacted you, tomorrow to inform you that you were included in the will. Think about this. Hear this out. You would love if this happened to you. I guarantee you. If someone contacted you tomorrow to inform you that you were included in the will of a local billionaire here in Richmond who randomly selected five people out of the phone book, a check for $10 million will be coming your way because five people will be randomly selected to be put in the will, it wouldn't be a ho-hum moment for you. It wouldn't be like, eh, not, not any bit bigger news than anything else today. If you told it, no, no, you, an envoy is sent to you, you were randomly selected, you picked five people randomly from Richmond, you're in this billionaire's will, you're getting a $10 million check just because it was fun for him to do. It wouldn't be a ho-hum moment for you. But eternal life is far greater, infinitely greater you could receive the check and be gone the next day. Nothing we have on earth will be in our possession 25 to 75 years from now. 
depending on how old you are here. 25 to 75 years, probably none of us will be holding anything. We may hope for a long life, a healthy life, but none of those things are guaranteed. But we do have the promise of eternal and glorious life, and that's exceedingly great riches. The presence of Christ in us that confirms and reminds us of this hope, that joyful expectation that this world isn't our home. Number three, last two here. Motivated to share. Paul says, him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Talks about the mystery of the, of the Gentiles. If we know and appreciate that we have received an amazing and undeserved grace, that we have an invaluable salvation, that we have an unfailing eternal hope, and a stewardship, in other words, we know we have a responsibility from God to take Christ as he's been given to us, and share him with others. We have both there the motivation and the love and the sacrificial gift all present, along with his command to go into all the world. I mean, we've received a whole lot. Now he says, all right, I've given you all this. Now go share it. Local billionaire gives you the $10 billion check. Here's the deal. You've got to share some of it. No, this is mine. I will not share it. No. Jesus said, I've given you something worth far more than 10 million. Go and share it. Will you work hard for your boss tomorrow because you respect his or her position? Because you're getting paid for what you're doing? Or because you believe in the work that you're doing? I hope the answer is yes to all the above, right? How about it with Jesus? Are you going to work hard for the Lord because of those same reasons? Because you respect his position? Because you've received far more than it's worth what we've done? And that we believe in the work he's called us to do? The answer should be yes, yes, and yes. In terms of the authority and worthiness of Christ, the promise of our inheritance, the value of the work we've been called to, that's 1,000 times 1,000 times 1,000 more than our careers. I don't have a career anymore. This is my career. But for the rest of you that have, far more. We have to see the calling. And lastly, again, the strength of our witness. Faithful labor through his mighty power. Paul says, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Paul was so thankful for the grace he had been given, so committed to Christ, and desiring that others be being saved, that he labored and strived. Those two words together, do you know what they mean, together? Those two words together mean that he worked to the point of exhaustion and to agonize. And it refers to the effort that athletes did in the Greek Greco-Roman period to win a race. That you would run to the point, if you said, the finish line is there, and I will agonize. I will feel like I'm going to clap, but I will get past that finish line. Paul's like, whatever the task God calls me to do, that's the amount of effort I'm going to put in. Truly, that's when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. People you know, think, well, 
we, we're saved. We don't work for our salvation. We don't. You're not working for your salvation. We're working because we've been given salvation. Paul was running to win, not for himself, but for lost souls. For him and for us, it wasn't drudgery to pour, drudgery to pour out his life. It was simply a duty he believed in, and it was a labor of love. It was a labor of love for him. The more we love Jesus, the more we love others, the more we don't mind pouring ourselves out, like Paul said, like a drink offering. Dr. Adrian Rogers said back when he was still with us, he said, discipline says, I need to. Duty says, I ought to. Devotion says, I want to. We need to get to the place of devotion. I want to labor for you, Lord. The other stuff's important too, the discipline and the duty, but we migrate to the place of, I want to. I, how bad is it with us? Do we want to love Christ? We want to serve him? I used to tell a coworker all the time when I was still in the business world, I'd tell him so often, you've heard me say it, some of you probably several times now, but I used to tell him all the time, no, 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 no. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. Because church to him was removing him from the golf course on Sundays. For real. He, he, Sundays was golf day. And to not be uh, knocking down 18 to 36 holes and to be stuck in a pew was the worst concept for him of the way to spend a Sunday. And I said, no, no, no. I used to think the same as you, but for me, it was surfing or being on the beach or something. Now I want to be with the people. I want to worship. I want to be with the people of God. So it's not, it's not drudgery for me now, but God changed me. on the, He changed my spiritual taste buds. And it's the same with sharing the gospel or serving. The Lord brings us to that place where we want to labor. Paul says, working according to his mighty work, which works with me mightily. But again, motive isn't enough. We still need his mighty power, don't we? We still need his power. We still need him to kickstart us many, many times, many, many times. Kickstart me, Lord. Kickstart me, Lord. And we pray, and he does. Fill me with enough strength. This is the balance of our life and our walk. We have the responsibility and the response to uh, all he's done, but we still need his power to actually do it. Amen? Taken together, these Verses perfectly illustrate the words uh, of the hymn that says, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Amen? Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. Help us, Lord, to nurture rejoicing and to accept the calling you've given us. And, Lord, to allow your spirit to work mightily through us that we move from, Lord, just discipline to devotion. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.